I invite you to follow in your Bible this morning as I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 8. At last, we move beyond those three chapters, 5 through 7, that we call the Sermon on the Mount. This is now beyond that, moving into some of the action narrative of the ministry of Christ. And as I had said, we're not going to necessarily consider every paragraph as we move through here, but this morning I want to take up the first 17 verses of chapter 8 and see them as a unit, even though there are three different incidents here. We know that the Holy Spirit led Matthew and the others to put the material of Scripture together in a way that it's not just a patchwork quilt of a lot of unrelated incidents. And I think you can see a unified thought, and I hope to show that to you in these 17 verses this morning. Listen to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. And then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, My servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes, and I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was astonished, and he said to those following him, I tell you the truth. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it will be done just as you believed it would and his servant was healed at that very hour. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait upon him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. And this is the word of our living God. He was a graduate of an Ivy League college, Dartmouth College. After postgraduate studies in the Old Testament. He taught for 25 years at one of America's 
finest theological seminaries. In 2005, he was named the academic dean at that seminary. At the age of 54, with a loving wife and four fine children, J. Allen Groves had everything to live for. But last week, on February 5th, he departed from this mortal life. And he entered into the immediate and glorious presence of Jesus, his King. The one about whom he had taught from the Old Testament. The one that he would have been an expert in showing you the Old Testament prophecies that led to Christ. Alan Groves met him last Monday. Despite intercessory prayer offered by scores of Christians over many months' period of time, cancer claimed this fine scholar and friend of many. Most of you did not know him. I bring it up because Alan Grove's death provides just one more occasion in the long procession that we might name of people who have been known to us in our own family and friendship circles, about whom we might say, why doesn't God heal all those who come and seek His power to work in their lives in the name and by the grace of Jesus Christ? We certainly believe in a God who can heal. He heals through the agency of modern medicine many times, Things happening in medicine even in the last years and decades that are just marvelous to us to see. Even in my not-so-elderly lifetime, I can see things and developments that have happened that are just stun me and amaze me that were not possible 20 years ago in medicine. And yet God, using medicine, often heals apart from medicine. We believe that too. He has that power. Sometimes he does things wonderfully, marvelously, that the doctors can't even explain. But then also we have to face the fact that many times he does not heal. Even when reasons for it or justifications to us would seem to be very obvious and and logical and good. And again, we ask that question, why is there so much heart-rending mystery surrounding God's providential dealings in this area of physical healing and suffering. Matthew 4.23, back even before the Sermon on the Mount, stated that the heartbeat of the ministry of Jesus was this. It consisted of him preaching good news of the kingdom and healing every sort of disease and sickness among the people. Healing was a hallmark of the ministry of Jesus. Now, as we begin to look at chapters 8 and 9, we're going to discover not less than nine miracles performed by Christ in these couple of chapters. They're given in sets of three each at a time with some other instructions to disciples sandwiched in between them. We're going to see bodily healings, demons driven out, miracles of nature, and even a girl raised from the dead in these few chapters. So here today, I've looked at just the first three of these healing miracles. You might think they have almost nothing in common, and I will 
just mention one link that they have, which is not incidental, but we're not focusing on it too much today. Recognize the fact that in each case, the person being dealt with was somebody on the outer fringes of society. A leper, that's about as far out as you can go. A centurion, Gentile, whom proper law-keeping Jews would not even associate with or go to his house. And an older woman, a widow, who had no husband of her own and, and really was at the mercy of family to keep and care for her. It's no coincidence that it is these, these three, you might call, outcasts or people on the edge of society, not in the center, are the ones that receive these first healings that we're told about here in Matthew 8. Jesus extended the power of God for physical healing in order to demonstrate his true authority as Son of God and Redeemer and Savior. Miracles, in a real sense, were a badge of his divinity and of what he was going to do at the cross. Now, today, I'm going to just go rather quickly over each of these miracles and try to show you how each one, I think, can represent a particular principle of the Bible about divine healing. So there's going to be three doctrinal principles demonstrated here, you might say. But then I want to have time to make some practical applications of this material as well, so that you might perhaps find it helpful as you think about either your own suffering or that of someone close and dear to you. So first of all, three broad brush, large-scale biblical principles that are demonstrated in each of these three healings or in the composite of these three healings. The first one is in Matthew 8, verses 1 to 3. I'll tell you the principle, then I'll try to show you how I, I see it here. The principle is this, that sickness was not a part of God's original perfect will, but it is permitted by him due to the fall of mankind. This man being dealt with in this first healing had what we call leprosy, more scientifically today known as Hansen's disease. Actually, we're told that in biblical days and even in days up to as, as recently as a uh, hundred years ago, there are many other diseases of the skin that were mistaken sometimes for leprosy, skin infections or psoriasis or things like that. But leprosy was a much deeper and, and far worse disease, as you undoubtedly know something about. It was a disease of, of the nervous system that caused the nerve endings in the extremities of your body, whether your fingers or your ears or your toes, to become dead and desensitized. And when that happens, the, the pain, some of you have commented, you watch me preach and you see one finger that looks kind of funny. Well, this finger got in a door and uh, it's got a big black bruise under the nail. And, and uh, when those nerve endings felt that door, I can tell you, uh, I yelped and uh, didn't say anything I shouldn't have, but I, I did certainly react to it. Well, if we didn't have those nerve endings, you know, I could have completely smashed that finger. I could have even cut that finger right off by some accident, and, and I wouldn't have even known. I wouldn't have drawn back from the pain that was destroying my skin and tissue. That's what happens in leprosy. 
As the nerve dies, the tissue that is protected by that nerve dies. And so you end up with with people terribly disfigured, without fingers and toes and noses. And they just look awful, and people are afraid of them. And, And so, of course, it's a disease that isolates people. In the ancient time, they were put in colonies or made if they... If they moved about in society at all, they had to walk down the street calling out, unclean, unclean, so that people would get away from them. Any illness is an isolating thing. But imagine an illness you have to have that makes people literally run away from you and avoid you and and get in as big a circle around you as they possibly can. The last thing anyone ever did was to touch a leper. Number one, because you might catch the disease, or at least so it was supposed. But number two, because even the Bible said you were ritually unclean by doing that. And and if you became contaminated that way, there was a whole process you had to go through to signify your cleansing again. Can you see how wonderful the thing it is that the first action of Jesus in this healing was to do what? He touched the leper. One commentator says, I wonder if that's the first time the man had been intentionally touched by anyone in years. Sometimes God doesn't have to say he loves us. He can show it. And he certainly showed it here. Jesus, the Son of God, did not stand at a distance. He did not observe the standard of uncleanliness and of supposed contamination for himself. He took a hold of this leper in love. But there's a more important thing found within this thing, and it's in the conversation that happens as the man bows down before Jesus in a posture of worship and calls him Lord. And then he says a strange thing. If you are willing, you can make me clean. Now notice he doesn't actually say, Lord, I want to be healed. He doesn't even ask the question, although, of course, it's implied, but he makes a statement. If you were willing to do it, I know that you have the power to do this. And he called him Lord, giving him the recognition of high authority, if not even divinity. But you see, in recognizing the power of God, this man did not presume that he knew the will of God. And, of course, Jesus stepped forward and said, I am willing. Be clean. And he was. Now, you wonder how do I get something important out of that phrase, I am willing. But I think it's a very important phrase because it speaks to us truth consistent with the Bible's broad doctrine of the origin of disease and sickness in the first place. For the Scripture's doctrine is that there was no death. In the original creation, as God made us, men and women would not have died as God originally created them. The Eden that he created, in other words, had no Asian flu, no leukemia, no cystic fibrosis, no birth defects, no heart attacks, no dementia. God did not make those things. But as mankind sinned, sinned against God, death brought into the back door of creation every kind of destructive mechanism that humanity could begin to experience. Now, there are people that 
thrash and trouble themselves over the fact that if they're sick or if they have a disease, oh, is God punishing me? What sin did I do to get this? We have to be careful all the time to point out when we say that illness or disease is at least indirectly tied to sin, that we're not saying it's always directly tied to sin. In fact, most often it is not. Most of the time when we are ill, when we receive some terrible disease, we're simply part of the broken creation. And our bodies are receiving, whether it is the virus or the germ or the aberration of cells growing in a strange way they're not supposed to, we're receiving the results of a creation that is bent and gone askew from God's original design. If you ask the question in the perfect original sense, does God will anyone to suffer from disease? The answer is no, he does not. He did not create disease. It is the byproduct of sin in the creation and physical death that came in as the penalty for sin. Just think about it for a minute. All you folks in the healing professions, any doctors or nurses or medical technologists or uh, people who sell pharmaceutical products, uh, we have many such folks here today. You would be jobless if death had not brought disease and all of these ills into the door of human creation. There's a relevant statement in 2 Peter 3.9 when it says God is not willing that any should perish. That is talking about that original design of God, what we might call God's original decree. God didn't create us to have cancer. That all came about because we rebelled, because our bodies even began to participate in the downgrade of life that came through sin. And so even if God was originally not willing that any should perish, people do perish. And this heart of God's heart is set in opposition to disease. It's not what he wants. When Jesus said, I am willing, he was speaking the very heart and mind of God. Certainly I'm willing. I don't want you to be like this. That's the expression of the will of God. A God who didn't design disease and didn't give it to us and yet permits it as a necessary consequence for the brokenness of this world that humanity has made for itself. So sickness was not a part of God's original perfect will, but he permits it due to the fall. I see that expressed, really, by Jesus in this first healing. Secondly, in verses 5 to 10, we find this story of the classic faith of the Roman centurion, a soldier, an officer. A centurion was originally in charge of a 100 men by the first century. That varied. Sometimes it was as many as 500 or as few as 50. But he was in charge of a, a decent company of people, a man of responsibility, a Roman citizen, a Gentile, and there, posted to the you know, outer provinces of Palestine, he was almost certainly away from his family. And so he would be tended by a servant. And that servant, of course, would become a companion and a trusted friend, you would think, who cared for his clothing and his meals and his equipment and you know, had a 
good deal of responsibility to him personally. And this Roman comes to Jesus and says, my servant is paralyzed and he's suffering terribly. Now, this is a Gentile. This is one whose roof proper keepers of the Jewish law would not go under. But Jesus, without hesitation, said, I will go and heal him. And then the soldier said, oh, no, Lord, I didn't come and ask for that. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. And you see how Jesus marveled over such faith as that. Faith that trusted in the truth that God could but speak the word and something would be done powerfully. And in the second place, then, the issue is not God's will regarding healing, but God's power or authority to accomplish healing. And Matthew 7, 29, I remind you, notes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus had finished that sermon, the people were amazed because they said, He speaks with authority. Well, now He is acting with authority, the very authority of God. You see, this Roman emperor knew where authority came from. In his world, it came from Caesar. And Caesar said, I want a certain military result out there in Palestine. Pass the word down through the generals. The generals pass the word through the captains and the captains to the centurions and, and whatever. And he understood the chain of authority by which orders came down. And Caesar could speak in distant Rome. And, and a month later, or however long it took to get the orders there, something would happen. Because of Caesar's authority. Well, this Roman was saying on this particular day that he believed that Jesus had delegated into his hands nothing less than the authority of God, the creator. The creator who could speak and say that worlds would come into being. That authority, he believed, belonged to Jesus Christ. So if the first miracle echoes the the perfect will of God, hating disease and, and desiring to eradicate it because it belongs to the realm of evil and death. The second one speaks to us of God's omnipotent power and ability to be able to banish disease, if he would, by a word of command. And so God is willing to heal, and God is powerful to heal. Now, with those two points before you, you would say, well, then why isn't everybody healed? And in fact, we could even say, if we were in a mood to blame God, why was it that even in the day that Jesus lived, those few years that he traveled about in his earthly ministry, why wasn't everybody in Palestine healed? You know, he did heal a lot of people, the text tells us. People were brought to them, and it seems like he didn't turn anybody away. But it nowhere says that, that he, you know, went into a town and healed every single person. In fact, we're told that there were times when people were still lined up at the door and Jesus said, let's go to another place. I have ministry to do there. So even in his lifetime, it doesn't seem like the goal was to heal absolutely everybody. Well, our third big principle then comes before us in Matthew eight seventeen after the occasion of Simon's Peter's aged mother-in-law. Very simple healing, not even asked for. Apparently, Jesus went into Peter's home in Capernaum. Here was the mother-in-law laying sick with a fever of some nature, laying on her bed, and Jesus just came over and gently touched her, and she was well. She got up and served him. 
But important here is the conclusion drawn by Matthew, as Matthew was always concerned to bring in fulfillment of the Old Testament into what was going on in the life of Jesus. And he does that here in verse 17 when he says this, This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried, or literally carried away, our diseases. This is a quote of Isaiah 53, 4. And we believe this is pointing directly to the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you ask, what's the principle then? The principle is this, that sickness and even death itself will eventually be abolished by the work of Christ at his cross. Now, we know that Isaiah 53, you don't have to be an Old Testament expert to know that Isaiah 53 is probably one of the most explicit Old Testament passages predicting the cross. It has those marvelous predictions of exactly what would happen as Christ went to the cross. Well, Isaiah 53, 4 seems to be telling us that these kinds of miracles that we are seeing are just foreshadowings, just advance looks at the powerful, sweeping work that Jesus would do with a cosmic effect as his cross would take away not just sickness and disease, but even death, which was the very root of it all. Psalm 103 has much the same thing in mind when it says there that the Lord forgives your sins and heals all your diseases. When Jesus died at Calvary, he won a victory that means that one day in the end of all things, when when he returns and consummates history, sin is going to be erased, death is going to be banished, suffering and wars and cruelty and all the brokenness of humanity is going to be no more because even our bodies, Romans 8.21 says, will be liberated from their bondage to decay. Our bodies are in bondage to decay today. But in our resurrection bodies, our new bodies, there's going to be no such thing at work anymore. And so in that final ultimate sense, the cross does indeed take up our diseases and carry them off along with all the consequences of sin. Matthew 8 is serving us as a forewarning that Jesus came to reverse the inevitable cycle of death and suffering that the world was a slave to before he came. He who is going to put away death at the end of time is foreshadowing the anti-death power of God at work even in his earthly ministry. All right, those are the big principles, and they've really been dashed off quickly today. Let me just remind you what they are again. God is certainly willing to heal because disease and death were not his creations. God is certainly powerful to heal because he was the creator who could speak things into being. And the atonement of the cross of Jesus actually guarantees eventually to every believer in Christ a final and eternal healing. But some of you are pretty unsatisfied. You say, well, okay, but what about the healings we need today? What about my relative who's in a serious stage of cancer? 
approaching where your friend, Alan Groves, went to and actually died from. Let me add some practical applications today, and many could be spoken, but I'll try to give a few that I think are directly applicable. One is this. We learn that whatever whatever God permits in our lives can be used for His glory. We are not fatalists, but we believe that whatever happens to us happens because it was at least filtered through God's gracious and merciful purposes. Even if He didn't create it, even the evil that He doesn't design, even the work of terrorists is filtered through the grace of God. And it need not become a totally wasted experience for the person of faith. Many of you have heard of Dr. John Piper. He's one of the finest biblical speakers today, a pastor in the Midwest who writes prolifically in books. He has a website, those of you that search for these things. If you haven't yet found the Desiring God website, look for it. Just put those words in, Desiring God, and you'll find John Piper's outstanding website. John Piper is someone who emphasizes the sovereignty of God in all that he writes. John Piper has prostate cancer. On his website, there's a very remarkable essay that he co-authored with another man who also has prostate cancer. Together, the two of them wrote an essay with a provocative title called Don't Waste Your Cancer. You ought to go check it out. Don't waste your cancer. I can't begin to tell you all the things that are there, but John Piper urges people, of course, to pray for healing. It may well be God's will to completely banish a cancer and do it through chemotherapy or whatever. But he recognizes as a Christian realist, a biblical realist, that healing is not going to come for everyone. And he acknowledges that whatever God permits, he permits for a reason. Your illness may be a tool to sharpen your perceptions of God at work in every detail of life, Piper says. I quote him, Cancer is one of those 10,000 valleys of the shadow of death that we all walk through. All the illnesses and disappointments and tragedies and incomplete things in in our lives are included. And God is active and present in those dark places. He's active and present just as he was at the cross of Calvary, planning and knowing that his resurrection power would bring a reaction to that the next day or two days later. Piper even suggests the ways in which cancer has given him remarkable opportunities to witness to people. He says, everybody, when they know you have it, they, they sort of hesitantly come and, well, how's the treatment going? And they want to they know if they even want to talk about it at all. They want to know, how's it going? And Piper says, well, I've, I've developed a system. I tell them in a sentence or two how the treatment's going. And then I turn the subject. And I say, now let me tell you about the great things God is doing for me. He's not going to simply talk about how the diagnosis is going or the miseries of the chemotherapy, but what God is doing in his life. He echoes the words of a 19th century preacher, Robert McShane, who once said when he thought about illness and weakness in his own life, McShane said, for every one look that you cast 
at your own illness. Cast ten looks at Christ. Certainly even those who suffer and do it with Christ can be a great witness to others. Another practical observation about these things could be stated this way. That sickness and disease forces us to reckon with our own mortality and death. A subject we are all too eager to avoid. Our whole American culture is terrified of death. We are addicted to youth. We idolize youth. And we will not and, and hardly can even manage to talk about death even when we're at someone's deathbed. But unless Jesus returns in our lifetimes, every one of us in this room will die. Psalm 90 says, teach us, Lord, to number our days, to have a right understanding of our lifespan, in other words. Why? So that we may gain a heart of wisdom. By facing the reality of our death, we're going to live in a wiser way. You see, Satan designs to destroy our love for Christ by bringing disease along. He wants to wipe us out. He wants to clear the decks of any talk about faith and and bring us low and let us die in despair. But God's design in permitting the same disease in which Satan tries to work evil is to cause you to seek Christ and cling to Christ. Piper wrote a memorable sentence. I quote him again. God's design is to wean you away from feeding at the breast of this world until you feast upon the sufficiency of Christ alone. Some of you who have suffered these things, I believe, can say amen to that. In 2 Corinthians 1.9, Paul wrote, We felt that we had received in ourselves the sentence of death. But... That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul was saying in so many words, I needed to be confronted with my own death before I would really learn to trust in the God of resurrection. Finally, there are many things we could say this morning, but hear this one other as an application this morning. Merely regaining your health out of disease is absolutely not the most important thing in life. There's a bit of cultural wisdom that I have spoken against before and I will continue to as long as I have breath. And it is when people say, if you have your health, you have everything. I'm sorry, that's just about one of the dumbest things that anybody could ever say. You might have your health for 93 years and never miss a day due to sickness and be a vigorous, keen-minded, sharp-eyed 93-year-old and then die in your sleep and spend the remainder of eternity in woeful suffering apart from God. Do you have everything? I think not. You might be in a situation where the doctors have said, chances are about 50% we can beat this. 
Chances are only about 30% that we can beat this. Chances are only 10%. And you're living, you're clinging to that percentage. Oh, Lord, let me be one of the 10%. I sure want to live another 10 years, another 30 years. I'm sure Alan Groves wanted to live. To see his son graduate from seminary where he's a student right now and a friend of the Light's son, Stephen Light. I'm sure he wanted to see his 12-year-old grow up and graduate from high school. And if the doctors had said, Alan, you've got a 20% chance, he might have clung to that and said, that's it. Let's cling to that. That's everything. But no, he didn't do that. He faced that. He did everything he could medically to fight the disease. Of course, we should use medicine to, to its utmost degree. Did he pray to be healed? Yes, he did. Did his friends and wife pray? Yes, we did. But Alan simultaneously had given himself over to the only 100% certainty that existed. Not 20%, 100%. That is the certainty of the love of God in Jesus Christ. Gripping and holding on. To every child of his who belongs by faith and calls him Redeemer and Lord and Great Physician. You see, folks, every one of us at some time or other, at some point in our life, is just about 100% certain to physically suffer. But because of the cross of Jesus Christ, when you look to him in faith, this Great Physician... We call Jesus is 100% certain to meet you, comfort you, and preserve you as his child at his right hand now and throughout eternity. Will we beat disease every time? Absolutely not. But believer, I can tell you, Jesus Christ is your only true life. He has defeated death and all its consequences. And the grave can take you temporarily away from those you love. That's a cold and a sorrowful fact. But it cannot take you away from him. Of that. I am 100% certain before God.